This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Discover Great Veg. I don't know about you, but I find myself cooking more and more vegetable-centric dishes, almost really without realizing. And this time of year, cavolo nero and spinach are two of my hero ingredients. I love them both so much. They're so versatile and delicious, whether steamed, boiled, braised, or stir-fried. For example, super green pasta sauce with cavolo nero, lots of spinach, garlic, a little lemon, all whizzed together and then stirred through hot pasta is such a quick and easy weeknight supper. I also love using cavolo nero and spinach where you blitz them together as the base for a chimichurri style sauce, which you can then serve with crispy roasted new potatoes and lots of yogurt, maybe some pickled red onion. So incredibly delicious and so easy too. For lots of delicious ideas for ways that you can cook cavolo nero and spinach, head to www.discovergreatveg.co.uk. These are ingredients that are readily available from your nearest shop. They're affordable, healthy, and by eating vegetables that are in season, you actually make your life as a cook so much easier because there's less you need to do to them to make them taste incredible. Thank you very much to Discover Great Veg. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. If you're signed up for the newsletter dinner tonight, you will know that I am hosting a live Zoom cook-along on Thursday the 12th of October at 7.30 in the evening. And we're gonna be making one of my all-time favorite pasta dishes. Please do come and join if you're free. You're gonna be sent all of the ingredients ahead of time so that we can really make supper together. Pour a glass of wine, have a chat. I'm really excited, but I have to be honest, I'm also slightly worried that no one's going to come. (laughs) They're going to be all on my own. So please take pity on me and come and join me for supper. It's only available to paid members of the newsletter. It's one of the perks of being a paid member. If you sign up for a year, it works out way under £1 a week. And I plan on doing some really great Zoom cook-alongs with some very special guests over the coming months. So you're definitely going to get your money's worth. Plus, of course, there are weekly recipes, behind the scenes of the podcast, extra questions with the guests. Mainly, please don't leave me on my own. (laughs) You can sign up at dinnertonight.substack.com and come and keep me company. This is a lovely episode of Desert Island Dishes with Tara. I think the amazing thing about the world of food is that there are so many different ways to work in food, from publishing to cookbooks to styling and photographing, podcasting. And I, for one, am learning all the time about jobs that I never knew existed. So I found this really fascinating, getting an insight into Tara's work with Team Ottolenghi and her role within that team. She's such a talented cook and recipe writer, and it's really exciting that she's now writing books under her own name. On with today's episode with the brilliant Tara. I do hope you enjoy. 
My guest today is Tara Wigley. Tara spent a decade working in publishing before going to cookery school in Ireland, where she spent three months with her twin toddlers and her dog. She has developed, tested and written recipes for Ottolenghi's weekly column in The Guardian magazine and monthly New York Times columns, as well as for his cookbooks. She is the co-author of the award-winning Falestine, in-house writer of Team Ottolenghi, Yotam's co-author on eight of the biggest food books, including the million-seller Ottolenghi Simple, and she is the mother of teen twins and a tween, which is quite a tongue twister. Her hilarious and often biting ditties on Instagram have won her a new audience, which is interested more in her own voice. How to Butter Toast is a recipe book without recipes, a rhyming route through the how-tos of cooking, which is both reassuring and entertaining. Welcome, Tara. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I just wanted to check that you are only going to be talking in rhyme throughout this. I am, yeah. indeed, <laughs> at great speed. <laughs> but... Seriously, it's amazing what you do. Has poetry always been a big part of your life? Well, I think poetry is a bit of a lofty word for what I enjoy doing. As a kid, me and my brothers would very much always do kind of rhymes or what we called raps at the time. (laughs) So two of us would take the beatboxing role and then the other would kind of step in and, and tell the story. And if ever we needed to kind of do justice to someone at a birthday so yes the form of of rhyming couplets has uh, has always been a feature and if ever I want to kind of make sense of something or kind of pin it down it has to be in rhyming form wow. I don't know why yeah that's what. so interesting <laughs> just the way your brain works yeah so I'm very excited to have you on desert island dishes and at the end of this we are going to cast you off to a desert island how does the thought of that make you feel I love being by myself and I love eating and I love great views. Um, So it sounds great. I remember a couple of years ago, we were asking our kids this question uh, on a car journey, but if they could take 10 things to a desert island, what would they take? And then two of my kids said it. And then Theo, who's very happy in his own company, he had his list of nine things. (laughs) And then his last thing was a sign that said, I've got everything I need. Thanks for the offer of help, but I'm fine. (laughs) And he was about 10 at the time, and it was just this great vision of kind of him being on his island. Very um, happy. And so, yeah, but I, obviously I can only say that with the freedom of actually, or sort of knowing that I've actually got my friends and family. Yeah. In my life. So that's interesting. So would you say you're an introvert? Um, I mean, I think like most people, I'm both. I'm I'm kind of happiest and feel most fulfilled and get most energy from uh being by myself and and the thing that kind of thrills me most is the actual work whether that's writing or cooking but mainly writing like for me uh uh the the most satisfying day is one where my sort of head is down and I'm actually doing the work and for this book I was completely offline it was all on pen and paper Mm. upstairs and in this world with so much information and noise and overwhelm I found the process of a blank sheet of paper and a pen just really uh just nourishing and satisfying 
That's so interesting. We're going to dive straight into the first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. I'm kind of loath to say it because it was such an exception to the rule. And I'm kind of interested that we remember the thing that was actually not the everyday, <laughs> which was mum's cooking, which was the kind of pork fillets and, and um, you know, just everyday food for me and my brothers. And then the dish that we always talk about and remember is dad's egg in the cup, where he would take a soft boiled egg and mash it up in a in a glass with uh, soldiers that had also been mashed up. But actually, the thing that I most remember was coming home from school and the plate of food that I used to make for myself at, at kind of four o'clock. And I just had an insatiable appetite with one of my brothers. And we used to just make these kind of door wedge size sandwiches with thick granary bread smothered with smooth peanut butter, not crunchy. Um, and then mum's jam, either raspberry or strawberry. Mum would always have um, carrot cake that was thick with cream cheese icing or what we called hammer and chisel, which was kind of fridge cake. So I'd have this just enormous plate of food at four o'clock. And I think as a kid, it's the same with breakfast, that those meals can often be the the most relaxing, fun ones because you've got control of kind of what's going on the plate. Mm. And I sort of, I, I see that now with kids having breakfast or it's, it's just sort of lovely to have that autonomy. So... Um, yeah, for me, the taste of childhood is is definitely a peanut butter and jam sandwich. So good. So your career has been one of two halves in a way. And the story of how you got to where you are today is such an interesting one. You began working life in publishing as a literary agent. Was that what you'd always wanted to do? We assistant to a literary agent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I was an assistant to an amazing guy called Abner Stein. Um, he was a real legend in the industry. And my job used to be to transcribe uh, emails that he typed out on his uh, typewriter. And he had this letterhead paper that must have cost about sort of one pound per bit of paper. And he'd type out his emails, pull them out the typewriter, hand them to me, and then I would transcribe them onto the computer and send them off to people via email. And he sort of signed it with his, with his ink pen um and I was only wait so you scan them you'd scan them in yeah so he would letterhead paper yeah Abnestein, he would write he would then pull it out sign it by ink pen hand it to me I would then type it up as like a proper email and send it off he was the UK literary agent to all sorts of I mean every single American author you can name from John Grisham downwards wow so it was, a, it was an amazing learning so I went from I went from agency and then I crossed the floor to um, editing mm. and worked in kind of mass market women's fiction for a few years, which was great. But then I think I did that thing where you look at your boss and then and think, do I want that? And although she was great at her job and very inspiring, that wasn't the life for me. I think actually back to the introvert thing that you have to really get your energy from other people. And there's just a lot of lunching and chatting and evening things that mm. I just find very draining as opposed to energizing and then we moved abroad for a couple of years. So that allowed me a bit, a bit of a break, even though I was still working when we were abroad because we were there for my husband's job. Yeah, so then I came back and then when we had twins and then I was going to retrain as a, an English mm. teacher thinking I could sort of, in that slightly naive way, that you'll, it'll all sort of work perfectly with those long holidays. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then the more I didn't open the paperwork from the university that I was meant to go to and the more I wasn't reading these sort of canonical books, the more I thought sort of question whether it was the right decision. And I was mm. cooking a meal with a friend of mine for my parents 
one evening and my friend Catherine, we were so busy, busy, busy and we were having a great time. But she said, oh, can you imagine doing this every day as in cooking? And everything in my mind just went tick, 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 tick. And I was just like, yes, I totally can. I love this. And my granny had just died and she'd given all her grandchildren exactly the amount of money it cost to go to Ballymaloo. <gasps> um, so it just felt like the stars were aligned. And, yeah. and even though there was sort of a couple of 18-month-old reasons why getting on a plane to Ireland wasn't the most sensible idea, um, I just kind of whisked them away and had the, the sort of hunger of a new mum yeah. <laughs> sort of determined. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But I think it's interesting when people have these different stages to their careers a, if you could go back in time, is that still what you would do with your 20s or would you have gone straight into food now that you've discovered that that is your true passion? I mean, I absolutely wouldn't have changed it because my love of food and eating and cooking is completely matched by my love of words and reading and writing. So I was so lucky to have both. And I guess I could have fallen between stools, which is what I sort of worried that, that might happen but actually you can either look at it as falling between stools or kind of straddling two worlds and then within both these industries you've got such kind of skilled focused people so to have someone who's sort of slightly across both is super super useful mm. um, and there's lots of people in kitchens cooking who are there for lots of reasons but one of which is that they're often dyslexic or can't, just aren't really strong at kind of words and writing. So to have someone who can string a sentence together is really, really useful. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy I did both. I think people can get really panicked by finding what they don't want to do, but that's sometimes what you have to do in order to get to where you want to be and what you do want to do. Yeah. We're going to pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. What's the first dish that you learned to cook? I mean, childhood was very much all about George's Marvellous Medicine. Okay. So there was a lot <laughs> of making stuff and then putting little bits of washing powder in it and then trying to get my brothers to drink it, to be honest, <laughs> which often worked. And when it came to sort of cooking for myself as a teenager, there was just quite a lot of chocolate bars wrapped up in kind of white bread it's a sausage roll of mine which kind of fueled me through my a-levels yeah and it wasn't really till I got to university that I realized the tourism of if you can read you can cook and that was the and it wasn't until I got to university that I actually followed a recipe and it's it sounds as I'm kind of crowbarring this in but I'm not was a otolenghi salad and it was my birthday I think it's my 19th birthday at university and I had all my friends sitting on the floor because obviously no one had any tables. And we sort of laid out this big bed sheet and we were all sitting around it as though that was a sort of tablecloth. And I'd made this buckwheat noodle salad with uh, cubes of fried aubergine and um, mango and loads of herbs. And I just followed this recipe and I just couldn't believe the results. And everyone just thought I was so clever because I wasn't really <laughs> in a kind of cooking gang. And... Yeah, that was that was the dish that I first had that kind of rush of excitement of how much joy you can bring through cooking a meal. Um, and if someone had told me that night, yes. I would be. It's crazy but, to yeah, think that. It's a, it's, it's a true story. So you describe a turning point in your life, as you've mentioned, that when you had your twins, life was all going very well. And you talk about how you felt like you'd got everything that you wanted until one day you're walking to the park and you caught sight of yourself in a shop window 
And it was that mo moment that would ultimately change the course of your life. Tell us a little bit about that moment. I, mean, I think we've had all had these moments when we sort of catch ourselves. And yeah, as you say, I was really happy. These are kids we'd really wanted for a long time and trotting around the pavements of Finsley Park. And I had this sort of dog attached to my wrist and twins side by side in the buggy and kind of January morning. And yeah, just caught my reflection. And I just had a realization that I wanted more. And I knew I had a really keen sense that there's no such thing as the perfect time. Mm -hmm. And you can sort of wait and wait. And that there's just always going to be so many reasons not to do something. And you've got to kind of just go for it and just trust that, that the logistics and the details fit into place. So, so from there, it sort of just became very, um, very apparent that I wanted to kind of do something, do something else. Mm. And had you always had Ballymaloo in the back of your mind as something that you would love to do? Not Ballymaloo specifically, but I'd, I'd had this, I'd had this sort of moment of realization that it was cooking. And again, I probably slightly naively thought, oh, I'll do cooking because because that will sort of fit around the kids and which is not true for anyone listening who thinks they can just slip in a career in cooking around kids like that's just a complete myth it took me a little while to kind of cotton on to kind of what Ballymaloo was about um I was just a bit knocked sideways by the energy of Darina and all these amazing women and this place that was a complete sort of idyll and I used to have to kind of go to Tesco's once a week just to get a reality check, just to kind of remind myself that this wasn't my life. And I didn't kind of go down to the sea to get water that was just salty enough to cook your perfect pasta in. And <laughs> it took me, I was like, sort of, what is this, this whirlwind place? And then within a few days, I kind of realized that I was somewhere really, really special. And then I just got swept up in the can-do spirit of Darina and Rachel and Rory so I didn't kind of drink the Kool-Aid till I got there. It wasn't somewhere I'd always, always dreamed about. But I think because I was so, I was so kind of white knuckledly sort of hungry for whatever was going to happen as a result of it, that I just absolutely, I just sort of devoured every single minute. And if you want to, you can be up at five in the morning and still going till midnight at Ballymalee. There's just sort of so many things to do and get involved in. Well, having done it myself, I think you are incredible that you did that with twin toddlers. I think that's <laughs> absolutely amazing. And I think also there is this perception that you do kind of have to put your dreams or your goals on hold when you've got especially mm. young children. Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. What's the best dish you've ever eaten? The dish that I really remember was in was when Chris and I were traveling together around Palestine. I told him we were going on a culinary tour, but in fact, we were doing a marathon, but I didn't tell him what? until we got there. Um, doing an actual marathon? Well, we were doing a half a marathon, but then in fact, I got to the end of the half and then I decided to do it again, which is actually a very clever way of doubling your sponsorship. I sort of got back to Manger Square and I was so fueled by tahini and flaffle and not being with children that I kind of messaged my WhatsApp team and said, if I do it again, will you double your sponsorship? Because I was doing it for a great cause. And, um, and suddenly someone was like, yep, done. <laughs> so then I had to do it. But anyway, so Chris and I had done this. And then we'd gone to Hebron the next day, which was a really intense. And we felt very conflicted about being kind of tourist sort of observers. And then we went to Jerusalem and had a meal at a um, 
restaurant called Machnieda. And it was just the most incredible evening. And all the food that came our way was just so incredibly delicious and drizzled in tahini and just the best sumac and lemon juice and olive oil and fresh chopped salad. And the whole restaurant had this real energy of just it was a bit kind of anarchic and fun and everyone was doing shots and it felt really different to anything I sort of have in London or elsewhere and it just felt like the best of kind of food as theatre and escape and it made you realise that when your kind of mind is fried that kind of food and shots and sitting at a bar can just really kind of do something more than just kind of provide good food. I love salads and I love big portions. And at the beginning, we were just given this sort of massive fatouche, which is the salad with kind of old pita bread and loads of sumac. And just that with a couple of shots of tequila was just kind of a great dish and a great moment. And just, and also felt like sort of more than just the dish itself. Mm, gorgeous. So I think it was 2011 when you first met Yotam Otolenghi and you began working with him. How did that come about? Because I think you'd been really brave and you sent him an email out of the blue, but I'd love to hear that story. I had emailed him from Ballymaloo because Darina has a quite big little black book, which has everyone's email addresses in. And then he'd said um, that he was opening a restaurant called Noppy and that they were looking for people staff to help out to, to work um, and then I went for an interview there with uh, Sarit Packer mm. um, who now obviously at Honey and Co and Honey and Smoke and we we had a really great chat uh, at the end of which she said hmm not quite sure what you're trying to do here because working in a restaurant when you've got two-year-old twins is just really quite a hard gig because you're getting home at one in the morning and presumably you're getting up kind of four hours later and if kids get ill you can't you know there's no sort of job share and you know I'm sort of paraphrasing but in a very nice way she sort of said look kind of go home and just maybe just think about something else uh restaurant work is not really the thing you should be doing now but just just kind of keep busy keep going and and like something something will happen so I cycled home from this interview just thinking, holy moly, what have I done? I've sacked in publishing. I spent all this money on this cookery course. I've got childcare because you can't look for a job unless you've got childcare. Mm. And it just felt like the stakes were pretty high. So restaurants was your, that was what you were focused that on? That was, yeah. I think it's, I think because I'd fallen for Ottolenghi and Ottolenghi food and knew I wanted to be in sort of in that I knew I wanted to be in the Middle East kind of food world, mm. uh, if not in in restaurants. And again, I was sort of slightly scattergun shooting in all directions, probably doing kind of bits and bobs of catering. And But that cycle ride home, I had a real kind of thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, I keep telling everyone that it's all going to work out. Like, <laughs> is it going to work out? And then for a few weeks, I was doing catering and I was doing something in Stoke Newington where you get kind of vouchers from me if someone had a baby then mm. you'd get vouchers and then I'd fill up their freezer and make soups and um, all kind of completely Ottolenghi clone kind of food sort of being made in my kitchen and then one day I got a call and I like a lot of people just never pick up my phone real phonophobia especially like no caller ID and I picked it up and, and I said hi this is Yotam Ottolenghi I've heard that you have got experience in publishing and editing and writing, but you're also 
kind of into cooking and you're he described this job of wanting someone to come and help him test and develop recipes for the guardian column and at that that time it was just at his house um sort of in his kind of galley kitchen and I genuinely thought it was my husband Chris playing a joke on me <laughs> pretending to be Yossam because Yossam was like my complete desert island <laughs> that hero would be the meanest <laughs> trick and I remember so clearly I actually had my sort of hand down my leggings like pinching the back of my leg kind of is this your time and then I phoned Chris back I was like is that you and it wasn't and that was a Thursday and Yosem said to turn up at his house on a Monday. And again, all these sort of life moments on a cycle ride. I sort of crossed London on my bike ride, still thinking, who's going to open the door? And then open the door and there was Yosem. And then the most nerve wracking part of that day was him giving me the keys to his electric car. And I had to kind of tootle off to Westfield to mm. buy all the ingredients. Oh <laughs> and then we sort of started away. And at the time it was just me and him. And as I say, this galley kitchen that was like being at the sort of back of an aeroplane. It was so small. And that was the beginning of Plenty, the mm. book. And that was his first book. That was the first book that I worked on with him. Okay. He'd done Plenty, the white one with mm. the wiggles on. And then I joined him. I did some recipe testing on Jerusalem. But then the first book that I was actively involved with the writing was Plenty More. Okay. Um, That's amazing. And so what were those early days like? What were they like? I mean, uh, they were kind of dreamy. And I mean, now looking back on it, now that the operation's much bigger and more established and slick in terms of kind of the team, you know, it's both sort of slightly making it up as we went along. And I remember he sent me around the Otolenghi delis for a couple of weeks to to learn the Otolenghi style. And I remember being in the Mokkom, in the basement of the Mokkom restaurant with Sammy Tamimi. And I remember overhearing Sammy on the phone to Yotam just saying like, who is this girl that you sent me? Because I just wasn't a trained, skilled, fast chef. And going into a kitchen is really intimidating. Mm. You know, I remember at the time being given this, this pile of cardamom to, to grind. And I didn't know whether you're meant to take the seeds out of the pod and then grind them or grind the whole thing and then pass it through a sieve. And it's so silly that, that you kind of don't feel reassured or confident to kind of ask someone, what do I do? Or You feel like you're, you're on MasterChef and all of your knowledge just completely goes completely, out of your head. Completely. <laughs> and really obvious things you just, completely. You just don't know. We're going to pause there and talk about the most important question of the day. Tara, what is your favourite sandwich? I'm going to feel very judged for this, but I recently <laughs> listened to the uh, Dan Keeling episode, so I feel mm. I'm in good company oh, he didn't when like I sandwiches. admit on the air that, like Dan, <laughs> even though I've written a book called How to Butter Taste, <laughs> I am much more likely to be found eating food in... So I love eating with my hands, and I love eating food between things, but those things are robust leaves. So I'm a big, big, big fan of like the big remain or the little gem that you can kind of pile things in as a sort of, as a boat. And so that is my preferred way of eating. Okay. You're no, there's very, no, very skeptical. There's no judgment on here. So, I also, <laughs> I, there's a time and a place for them. I love them too. What so, are you filling it with? I'm filling it with uh, lots of things. So I'm, I'm not at all a kind of person who's sort of one thing at a time. I'm, I quite like a lot going on. Uh, so my favorite combination, which is a which you'd normally have in a pitta, it's called sabik, where you have the mm. the fried cubes of aubergine, uh, hard boiled egg, uh, the creamy tahini, 
you've got amber, which is the mango sauce, sort of pickle. And the nomi, there'll be lots, lots of other things going on in there. There'll be like zog, the, the Ooh, coriander chili yeah. paste. Mm. Uh, but the key is is the kind of the big, big wedges. I often do thick slices of, of the aubergine. So anything kind of related to like aubergine, olive oil, feta, eggs, spice. It's all in there in a massive grate. And repeat, not not one, I'm not having one leaf. This is no. kind of, so. <laughs> one tiny little leaf. One tiny little leaf with a single bit. So there's there's kind of, it's, you know, it's a messy operation as with all best sandwiches, but it's, yeah, it's crunchy yeah. and green. Yeah, that sounds great. So I don't know whether everyone listening will know that people like Yotam and other famous food writers, I don't know if everyone knows that they have people like you helping them. I, I don't think I was aware of that for a very long time. It's Yeah, it's interesting. I think people like, I think it's just an easier narrative for there to be one person. Mm. And I think Yotam is really unusual in being really unusually generous in his attempts to share the platform and pull everyone up with him because he often has a, in fact, he always has a co-author. He has a team of, a small team of people testing recipes and he is the first to try and kind of haul everyone up on the stage with him. And yeah, I think for people, they sort of quite often just want the single narrative um, and the, the sort of the, the, the single person. It's just a kind of an easier brand and thing to sell. So I've, yeah, it's sort of a nonsense for anyone to imagine well, that kind of any form of creation or theater or is one production person. is one person mm. it would be a nonsense if everyone, if everyone actually thinks about the reality of their day like yeah, <laughs> how, how that would, would work that happen? but it um, must be quite a unique feeling I mean to have written in collaboration with or just part of your role to write these books and like simple it sold it sold millions and millions of copies I wonder how does it feel on publication day if if your name isn't on there and you know how bigger part of it you were and it is of you and I, that just must be quite a unique feeling it's definitely a thing and it's not completely straightforward um I have to remind myself that it is my job mm. <laughs> to be kind of a collaborator we've never kind of used the word ghostwriter it's always kind of writing collaborator because again it's not a secret yeah and yet I sort of sometimes have the analogy that it kind of not that I have ever been a mistress, but I imagine it feels a little bit like being a mistress in terms of kind of all this magic happens behind closed doors and you feel very kind of alive and seen. And then once it's out there or you're at parties or the book's there, then you're not. And so it's a kind of process of reminding yourself that it's it's the job. You're super kind of generous, really liking and kind of feeling like you've got the same voice and tone as someone, I think really helps. I think mm. it'd be really tough to be a writer for someone that you didn't kind of chime with. But that's interesting, but, isn't it? Because in a way, maybe that's easier because you have very different voices. So that's like, that would be your work voice. Yeah. But then it's so a part of you. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that I'd say the lines are pretty blurred. Yeah. <laughs> I'm quite bad at kind of the game face or the work face or putting on a different hat mm. for different contexts. So again, like writing Palestine, that was kind of me as me with Sammy. Um, but then we were writing the story of Palestinian food and Palestine, which was another kind of huge challenge because obviously who am I to tell this story? And then we realized that the way in was to tell the stories of, 
of other people and to kind of profile mm. about 10 people and organizations in Palestine. The timing of that was so interesting because that was the first time that you'd had your name as a co-author on the on the spine of the book. And then it came out the day that lockdown was announced yeah. in the UK, which must have yeah. been yeah. a strange time. It was. I mean, it was strange for everyone, but yeah, it was, I was really sad. Mm. And yeah, it was, there was definitely kind of a grieving process. And I remember during lockdown, I was cycling around once and then I saw someone on the doorstep giving someone else a copy of Palestine. And I screeched to a halt because it was the first person I'd seen actually with this book, even though I knew people were cooking from it. And and um, they must have thought I was completely bonkers because I, I sort of rushed over to them, sort of insisted that I sign this book. They're like, who are you? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, but it's interesting with, with voice because I think then with this rhyming book, I sort of think, am I still like hiding behind my voice, like through, like imposing the rhymes on it, you know, mm. kind of putting that putting that structure on. But um, I don't think you're hiding, but I think it's a process. If if your job has been to be someone else's voice for such a long time. I mean, like you've written a column in the New York Times. But I think that's a huge gift to, you know, someone actually gave me a column in the New York Times and said, write a thousand words. You know, I wouldn't be able to mm. sort of get my pen out my bag. It's like it's having that an kind alter of pretending. Ego. Yeah, completely. But yeah, I think it's a sort of double thing. On one hand, you have to kind of have a dialed up version of yourself and a bit kind of fake it till you make it. But then at the same time, you also can't actually pretend to be someone else. I can't pretend to be Nigella Lawson mm. because so it's, it's sort of both things at once. Yeah. We're going to pause there and talk about the fifth desert island dish. What is the dish you eat the most often? The dish that I eat the most often is, is, um, it's, it's, it's the sort of, it's the fridge raid lunch. So I'm a real batch cooker. So on a Sunday, I'll spend five, six hours um, stocking up my fridge as though I'm a kind of short order chef and I've got everything, <laughs> everything ready and all my kind of baba ganoush and all my chili sauces or kind of the moment there's a tarragon spinach hazelnut pesto in there. Ooh. And then, so my lunch is just kind of a great plate full of all these things. And then uh, I always poach chicken every week and then there's often kind of the chicken or sort of lovely tuna. But for me, that combination of kind of a big hunk of protein with sort of a ton of salad and punchy chili sauces and and those those salad leaves. Yeah, that sounds gorgeous. <laughs> so you do all of the that prep on the weekend for your lunches, or are you also prepping for because you've got three children? Yeah. So, so no, I only cook for myself. No, no, but as in, like, are you preparing uh, family no, meals so ahead that, of time on that Sunday or probably twice a week? I'll do that. Uh, I'll sort of make sort of ten things. Okay. Um, and then there'll be a kind of a basil pesto for pasta no, I wasn't suggesting be... that you don't cook your children <laughs> um and tomato sauces and then the poached chicken gets us about kind of four family meals so that will we'll often have ramen with the mm. the stock and the chicken and then and then I'll do a risotto and then from that there's the arancini so there's kind of yeah. is that sort of rolling meals that come from the yeah from the chicken so satisfying that mm. kind of cooking so if people follow you on instagram they will know that you are famous for your very witty poems and now that we have a book how to butter toast which is really unique in that it is a recipe book but it doesn't have any recipes in it it's a how-to book really which i think cuts through the noise of the world of cooking 
was the idea that in a world of infinite choice, that's actually very overwhelming. And Completely. this kind of book is Completely. necessary. Completely. I, I really think that. Um, I'm interested in the number of people who go to the internet to get recipes because for me, a recipe book is kind of the opposite of all the noise of the internet and all the many voices you can get. And I find it, when I get overwhelmed, I, I find it super reassuring to get one recipe book and one person's voice telling me the way to do one thing. And I just love the process of reading it. I love the story. I love the introduction. I just love the voice. And then I'll sort of check something online about, oh, you know, what are the timings for a boiled egg? And, and I'm completely spun out. And I think that's happening for a lot of people, that there's so much information out there and everyone's so certain that their way of doing something is the only way. That for the person at home wanting to just poach an egg or roast a chicken or make a martini or do anything, it's just really easy to feel insecure and overwhelmed or that all that sort of FOMO that everyone's kind of doing it better or having some roast potato party that you're not part of. <laughs> so I wanted each rhyme to reassure the reader that there's lots of different ways of doing things and that if you think it's delicious, then that's the way it should be. Um, and then each rhyme, it's meant to entertain people, but it's also meant to enlighten so that people actually see the science behind why some people put milk in first or water in first and a cup of tea. Or I know, I read that. Get... Do people put milk in first? <laughs> <laughs> like, no they judgment, do. I mean, do they? <laughs> and then, you know, you only would have needed to if you had a sort of dainty china cup that would, mm. that would crack. Um, but it's the same with vinegar. Like you don't need to be putting vinegar in when you poach an egg if they're mm. fresh. Oh, and so yet, that's what it is. And yet that's sort of something that used to have a reason for it mm. now has just become a habit. But, you know, people will get so riled about it, about do you or do you not kind of vinegar your water? And like, the only test should be is, do you like the outcome? Like, mm. do you like the taste of it? And we can get our knickers in such a twist. So, so the book is meant to reassure and then in so doing, liberate people. Mm. And, you know, I can go through my whole life not cooking a steak because I get intimidated or think there's a right way or a wrong way. Um, I would never poach an egg for someone else. I would always just do it for myself. So it's it's funny, isn't it? It's sort of tied up with judgment or what's, mm. what's this saying about us? And that's just all a nonsense. So it's, just, it's meant to sort of a little bit of a kind of call of bullshit on anyone who says there's only one way to do things mm. it's meant to be fun and delicious it is yeah that's the only thing that matters like it's not meant to be stressful I wonder if it's that there's been a change in the way that people are learning to cook where you used to a long time ago you would start with the basics you know like the Delia how to boil an egg book and you'd work your way up through the different processes and kind of by learning the basics you're then able to do more complicated things whereas now maybe that isn't happening so much and you just dive straight into a full dish without really understanding why you're doing any yeah. of the things you're yeah. doing maybe that's part yeah. of it I don't know I think that's really true I think that's really true. This book was originally called How to Boil an Egg. Oh, was it? Turns out Mrs. Smith did uh, oh. had had taken that. But um, but then but then it's also never too late to start. No. And we were saying before about cookery school that it was so great going, and I was sort of mid career, and then there was people who were at the beginning, and then there was a a sort of a, a sort of group who were in their sixties mm. who were just starting out, and I love that too. I love. The fact that you don't need to peak age kind of 14. No. <laughs> you can just sort of 
you're never gonna know everything like that's the kind of fun thing yeah. about cooking is you'll never yeah. get to a point where you'll be like oh I'm done yeah. and it's kind of disproportionately <laughs> satisfying I think mm. it's like with baking it's kind of it's disproportionately thrilling what happens when you mix these ingredients and put them in the oven yeah we do so many more difficult things in our day and yet I'm not someone who would sort of make my own pastry every week and yet when I do it's just so yeah exciting yeah you feel like a proper yeah. adult <laughs> let's talk about the sixth desert island dish what's your go-to dinner party dish my go-to dinner party dish I think it's more kind of a way of eating rather than specific dishes which mm. is very much kind of cook ahead um room temperature food uh I can't imagine not having a whole kind of spread of food on a table kind of eight different things going on for everyone just to help themselves I don't think I've ever maybe when I was 18 but I don't think I've ever kind of had a buddies over where I would sort of plate up food for them and then give it to them because I would I would hate someone to do that to myself I love serving myself so like handing food around and just get kind of nervous if there's not kind of more food sort of going on and then there's always a mix we really have dinner parties where it's just adults uh so I'd say chicken features quite a lot on family get-togethers. There's a chicken musakan in Palestine where you make a ton of, uh, you sort of sweat down a lot of onions and then pile in a load of sumac, the sort of tangy spice and cumin. So you've got these sumac onions and then you've got chunks of chicken that have been marinating in simple spices, kind of cumin and cinnamon. And then that's all piled on top of the onions and then you've got um, parsley and pine nuts and then and it's all sort of served on flatbread and everyone can just take take a bit themselves and put it in the bread oh, wow um, that sounds incredible so that's delicious chicken marbella in simple is a really really good one and everyone loves that with kind of massive dates and big green olives actually that got chosen by someone else on their dream dinner party oh it's, it's brilliant yeah. I mean, it's, it's quite good. a retro dish like otlingi didn't invent chicken marbella but it's it's kind of marbella plus plus mm -hmm. and it's it's just delicious. It benefits if you prepare it the day before, which Perfect. is just genius, which is just great. Yeah. Do you tend to serve a pudding? Um, pudding? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Uh, Your voice went very <laughs> high just then. If anyone says, can I bring something? I often kind of get brain freeze and kind of outsource pudding. Okay. Or mum's next door and we'll often kind of, she's, she's the queen baker. There's a really great, I don't know if it's called deconstructed cheesecake. That feels a bit bit dated now as a title but again that's in simple which you have sort of lovely thick you have a sort of crumble and then a plum compote um and the crumble's quite salty with with uh, black and white sesame seeds in it mm. and then thick cheesecake mixture and then again everyone just can sort of pile up as much as they want of the different different bits oh wow that's that sounds really delicious yeah, that sounds incredible on desert island dishes we have a cookbook corner what is your most treasured cookbook I actually think this is the most difficult question because mm. I'm very much someone who would kind of take my books to bed with me and read. And I feel really connected to all the all the writers of books that I love, even though I'm not connected to them um, anyway, apart from words. So something like Nigella Lawson's How to Eat is a complete gospel like Bible of mine. And I sort of read it and reread it or Nora Ephron Heartburn, which is not a cookbook, but it's just sort of infused with just a lot of things that I love. But the cookbook I would actually take with me to the desert island are, if I can have the 
double act of the Flavor Thesaurus part one and part two. Yes. By oh, Nikki Segnet. Yeah. Because I Amazing. think we, well, I have met her. We're a little bit buddies, but I think we could be really good buddies. Nikki, if you're listening. I can see that. Um, and I think it'd be very useful to have on the island because she would help me uh, know what matches with what and what pairs with what in her sort of genius rabbit hole pairings right up. Um, and she just got a kind of, She's just got a voice that I love because she's so informed and um, and original and clever, but it's just worn so lightly and she's just so funny and witty. Um, and she so I think also has being, twins. And she also has twins. Yeah, that is true. That's yeah. good intel. We just yeah. got so much in common. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is... So I think The Flavor Thesaurus is, is, yeah. is the book. It's such a genius book. It is a genius she's so clever. Book. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? <sighs> the last dish. Well, if I was saying goodbye to London and my buddies and my family I think I'm gonna start the night off on my bike and sort of cycle do a little bit of a sort of cycle ride around London uh so I think I'll set off from here in Clapham and go via Derby's in Vauxhall mm -hmm. which is a sort of culinary haven in <laughs> an otherwise <laughs> unprepossessing part of London um and then I'd sit at the bar there and I would have I'd probably meet a couple of girlfriends there if I'm gonna say goodbye to them um so I think we'd have like probably break the one martini rule and have two martinis each and then have lots of beautiful oysters at the oyster bar. And then also maybe have a starter there. Have They've got an amazing steak tartare, Ooh. which has got just, it's just packed full of umami bombs. I think there's marmite in there and uh, nori seaweed and horseradish and ketchup. It's completely knockout. So that, I think that would really be great. Say goodbye to them, get back on my bike, helmet on. And then I'm going to go to a restaurant that doesn't exist anymore. Okay. But I'm going to bring it back just yeah. for this night. And it should come back to London anyway, because it only left quite recently, called Yoshino, mm -hmm. which is a great sushi restaurant. Um, and I go there once a year with my twins uh, on their birthday. And every year, Lisa, who was the manager there, would give Scarlett and Theo one more gyoza every year. So we were Aww. on to, we had 14 last year because normally they only had 11 when you had a portion and then we, and it, we 11 and then 12 and 13 and 14. So I wish next week when it's their birthday, we were going back for the 15th. We only go there once a year because it's a real treat. And it's one, and it's got incredible sushi, which is something I'd never cook at home. And then every year we always share this. You can get this kind of ice cream where they have like nine different scoops of matcha ice cream. Ooh. And then each one gets stronger and stronger as you go along. So you start off with only a little bit. And then by the end, it's like super intense. Oh, wow. Um, oh, in fact, I forgot to say that uh, Boca de Lupo sent over a butterhead lettuce, the whole lettuce starter that they've got to the... to. Um, to Derby's to have with a steak tartare. Oh, perfect. That was so um, nice of them. <laughs> and so, because as probably established by this chat, I love green things. And they've got this incredible whole head of kind of loose leaf um, lettuce with this incredible simple dressing. Um, and people who think they're not going to eat an entire sort of head of lettuce will find themselves doing so. But anyway, I'll go and say thank you to them for that. And then I'm just going to stop off at the gelateria opposite for just one final kind of espresso and maybe a tiny bit of I might just sample their super dark chocolate because even though I've had my matcha I just want a tiny bit of chocolate yeah. espresso done back on my bike amazing Off. well with that we're gonna send you to the island thank you so much Tara <laughs> 
There we have it, another delicious day of desert island dishes. If you don't already, you can come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And don't forget, you can sign up for the newsletter at dinnertonight.substack.com. You can come and join me next Thursday evening. It'll be so fun. Thank you very much to our sponsor, Discover Great Veg. And thank you very much for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.